Slurp it loudly into this microphone. Nice. <laughs> Did you marry me because I can burp on command? Yes. It's exactly. So the first girl I meet who can burp at will, I'm gonna hitch that one up. I'm gonna marry that one. I told my mom that wasn't a useless skill. <laughs> she said, if you keep burping like that, you're never going to find a man. That's exactly what she said. <laughs> Did she say it like that? That was a great imitation. Thank you. <laughs> Love you, mom. It's going to be like they're right here with us today, I can tell. Who? The people. A- anyone listening. Oh, yeah. All the bodily noises are just going to be just going to be out there. <laughs> Welcome. Wait. <laughs> Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Go ahead. Now's your part. No, we're not starting over. I'm Chad. I'm Liz. <laughs> Welcome to episode 39. Woohoo! That's right, yeah. And we are reading The Lies of Locke Lamore by Scott Lynch, a part of the Gentleman Bastards series. And we are reading through the end of chapter 13. That's right. So according to our spoiler policy, we will not spoil or discuss anything that's happened in these books after chapter 13. That's right. Chad, my co-host, has not read the books yet, and we really like his interesting predictions that he comes up with at the end of the episode. So we don't want to spoil him on those. Next week in episode 40, we're going to take a slight deviation, and we're actually going to cover... The Trade Paperback, Volume 1 of Brian K. Vaughn's Paper Girls. Oh, it's so good, you guys. It's fun stuff. Pick it up if you haven't read it. Even if you think you are not a comic book type of person, I love this book. And it would be a great, I feel it would be a great intro to anyone who doesn't think they're into comics. Yeah, I would say Um, so. It's a good book. If you like Stranger Things... I think you'll like this book. Agreed. Very very much agreed with that point. So on but the week after that, our yeah. next mm-hmm. book club, we will be covering The Lies of Locke Lamora, chapters fourteen and fifteen, as well as both interludes that are after those chapters. So we'll start with chapter fourteen. I'm looking very puzzled right now. You are. Two chapters and two interludes. And then two interludes? Yes. Not commingled? But just two and then two? Right. No commingling over here. This is just, this is all willy and all nilly at the same time. It's timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly. It's something. So I just want to be clear because the interludes are not numbered. So we have 
chapter 14 on our next book club through the interlude titled The Throne in Ashes. And then after that, the We're next done, book right? club, we will be finishing the book. Booyah. So we have two more book clubs before we are through this book. So I would like to get feedback, and, and I'm assuming you would as well, start getting feedback from anyone listening as to whether you're interested in hearing us cover the second book in this series or whether you'd like us to hear us jump into something else. We've been getting some a little bit of feedback about what you guys think of this book so far. And yeah, just just start throwing those ideas out there at us. Yeah, it's a good time to talk about it. So that gives us essentially three weeks until we really kind of have to make that decision. And just because we've picked up The Lies of Locke Lamora and read it doesn't mean we have to continue reading the rest of the series. We could do whatever we want. This We're grown-ups. Is, this is our podcast. Our kids only think they're the boss of us. That's right. Really, it's the man. Absolutely. And those infernal bills that he keeps sending me. <laughs> All right, so are we ready to begin talking about the book? Yes, yeah, so the first interlude that we talked about is called The Lady of the Long Silence. What did you think? Yeah, so this was interesting. I enjoyed reading about this. So this is when Jean gets sent to the temple of Azagia. I hope I'm saying that correctly. And goes to learn what they're all about. We already know that the chains will send the kids off to different priesthoods and different temples to learn more about the inner workings of them. And in this one, Jean gets sent uh, to Azagia to learn about this one. But Azagia is the death cult. And not surprisingly, it's a little wacky. It's creepy as fuck. It's a little crazy. Absolutely. So, not surprisingly, they're not heavy into OSHA regulations. <laughs> There's no guardrails, no brightly colored vests. You can park your truck on a hill and not have to chalk the tires if you want to. You can do whatever you want in that cult. When I was in the army, I'm going to make a little aside here. So I got I got to spend some time at a place called Fort Irwin, which is this magical place in the middle of goddamn nowhere. It's the most forsaken place in these United States. It's in the middle of like Death Valley, basically. Not really, but it's the Mojave Desert. And if you're there and you're part of what they call the opposing force, you get to pretend to be bad guys which is really cool. And when you go out into the field, you don't have to follow any of the normal rules. Like, you don't have to wear your helmet all the time. And like, you don't have to shave every day. It was awesome. You like being the bad guy. I loved being the bad guy. It was so much fun. I have a thing for bad boys, so maybe that's what drew me to you in the first place. I would say so, yeah. I, I could tell you were a rebel. Oh, I was a rebel. Didn't like to shave. Exactly. That's how my, you know, rebellion came. It's the little things. <laughs> Listen. You had a little bit of punk rock in you. A little bit. It starts with not shaving, okay? And it ends with killing the czar and his children against a brick wall. So. We're, we're going to get in trouble. <laughs> what? Do you know any czars? Not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. Because some motherfucker who didn't want to shave took them bitches out. <laughs> U.S. government, if you're listening, he's <laughs> and, just kidding. And you are. And you are. <laughs> Hi, uh, Uncle Sam. 
Hello, FBI <laughs> NSA agent number 26437. 65321. All right. Anyway, Jean, so Jean, yes, goes to become an initiate of this creepy death cult. Mm-hmm. And they're just as creepy as you would think. As they, you would think. You would think they are. Once you get you know, past the basics of understanding your letters and your sums, they hand you a mask that you have to wear. So nobody can tell if you're a man or a woman. And then they poison you on purpose just to get you close to death so you can feel what it's like. So they see death in two aspects. They talk about death, the transition and death, the everlasting and death. The transition is something that they're all really obsessed with and they, they want to experience as much as possible. So after a few months, John is working his way up and he's, he's supposed to learn what he can in five or six months and then come home. But he, he very quickly is progressing. And after being poisoned, he starts having a a laughing hysterical fit where he talks mm-hmm. about watching his parents and his cats die in a fire. And they, the upper priests assume that he's had a vision. And so right away he gets promoted to the third level of this priesthood. And they tell him to be really excited because he's going to get to spend a month being killed over and over again. And <laughs> over it's going to be great. We're going to throw you in the ocean at night. We're going to make you dance with serpents. <laughs> So Jean basically says, you know, that's going to be a hard no for me. I'm going to nope the fuck right out of here. (laughs) Nopes the fuck right out. (laughs) Sends a note that is essentially, look, y'all motherfuckers like to play with death. I had no time for that horse shit. I decided to jump off a cliff. Don't bother looking for me. So one thing I thought was interesting in this chapter. We are but four and twelve virgins between the ages of 16 and 19 and a half go ahead (laughs) yeah i mean apparently death priesting is for morons yeah that was kind of my problem with it is that it painted these guys as being really comical well that's kind of what i was gonna get into next um we've talked about how do these guys get away with what they do and i feel like this kind of highlights the naivete of the priesthoods. And we've talked about this a little bit before that nobody in this culture expects anyone to do the kind of things that the gentleman bastards are doing. So for the priests of Azagia, it seems that it would be unheard of for an initiate to just run off. Though you'd think that initiates would want to run off all the time. You would think, But the yeah. fear of being struck by one of their gods, like you, you don't just join a priesthood and then leave especially not if you've passed through a couple of levels. Nobody expects them to do this. Yeah, clearly. And in fact, a little later in the chapter, in the section that we're going to cover without going too much into it, Jean goes back in a little bit and uses his experience in this cult. And he uses the same name that he used as a boy. And Locke says, aren't they going to remember that? And he says, yeah, but when they figure it out, they'll think it was a sign. It'll give them all a good... (laughs) It'll get them all excited. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, I mean, they're assholes, but I want them to have fun. <laughs> and then I think what uh, the ta- the big takeaway from this chapter is, well, A, setting up the Tavern Callus thing, having Jean at the end realize that he thinks he is fated to serve the lady most kind, just mm. maybe not in the way that the priests do. He says this as he's like, winking at his hatchets and then also kind of explaining a little bit more about 
this this priesthood. Yeah, which we've already had a little bit of introduction to, just the the faintest bit of introduction to. So now we get a chance to kind of flesh that out. And more more cool world building. When we get to the end of this interlude, we are now out of part three and into part four. You know something about this book? It's just got a lot of strange divisions. Yeah. You know, there's a bunch of parts. Most books have two, maybe three parts, if they do that at all. This one has like five parts. And then the chapters with the interludes and then some of them being subdivided further into parts. It's just a lot of... Chop it, chop it, chop it. And they're not very evenly spaced either. They're no. they're spaced based on the narrative, not the page length, which is interesting. Yeah, and and I, well, and I respect that. I'd I'd much rather, I'd much rather it end where the story naturally ends than, you know, somebody feeling like they have to keep their chapters between. I have to keep them between fifteen to twenty pages, and ne'er shall I stray. You know, I think that sort of does something to the storytelling that is somewhat artificial in my opinion. So, so that's cool. But yeah, it's, um, it's just an interesting way of kind of categorizing and, and subdividing things. Yeah. And we talked a little bit in our last book club about the various quotes that were used to set the tone for the parts. Mm -hmm. And this one is from Mitch Williams and it's just, and so we've had, let's, let's review. We've had two sections, two quotes taken from Shakespeare's Henry the sixth and one from, Rousseau. Yeah. And now we have one from Mitch Williams that just says, I pitch like my hair's on fire. <laughs> and it really does kind of set the tone for what happens next in the next couple of chapters is Locke sure. and John pitching like their hair's on fire. <laughs> so chapter 12 is called The Fat Priest from Talverar. Telverar, maybe? Telverar. I don't know. We need, you know what? Generally, at this point, we've had people correct our pronunciation, but not that many people must be listening to the audiobooks. I guess not. So, in part one of this chapter, this one kind of breaks out pretty well in the different parts, and it jumps around a lot. It goes from kind of present day, and then it flashes back a couple days and comes back to present day. So, in part one, we have Locke waking up. In the last chapter where we had Locke, he collapsed on the street and passed out. So Locke wakes up, and we find out that Jean saw Locke collapse and took him to a dog leech named Ebelius. And the dog leeches are the medical counterparts of the black alchemists. Mm -hmm. So they're not reputable enough to be physicians. They're not part of the physician's guild. Witch doctors. Yeah, back, back alley doctors. There's not they a have real... like a lot of essential oils. <laughs> They're like homeopaths. They're like chiropractors today. Shh. Went for the chiropractors. <laughs> what? Are chiropractors going to get angry? <laughs> Look, I've already pissed off all of Sweden. <laughs> any remaining czars we have left. Clearly. <laughs> I mean, if there were any, you know, they would be commanding armies to come get me. But thankfully... And bitches be dead. <laughs> so, you know, why not piss off a profession of so-called doctors? Oh, <laughs> the Duke and Duchess podcast would like to extend our apologies to the chiropractic community. <laughs> Listen, send your hate mail to don't give a shit at the Duke and Duchess podcast dot com. You are salty tonight. I don't know what it is. Our kids made slime this morning. 
Jesus, that may have something to do with it. It was rough. Okay, so so uh, he wakes up with the dog leech, finds, finds out. They have a long discussion about his health and how he was just running around like a maniac. He's been passed out for two days. Covered in earthworms. Earthworms and turpentine. I mean, seems legit to me. All right, so honest question. Go ahead. Would you rather spend two days covered in earthworms and turpentine, but unconscious, Mm -hmm. or have to make slime with our kids for 30 minutes? Um, Two days (laughs) unconscious covered in earthworms and turpentine. It's not even a... (laughs) I don't even have to think about that. Gotcha. I don't even have to think about it. All right, so during this time, apparently, Jean's been kind of out walking around and taking stock of what's been going on. And what we find out in this part is that the gentleman bastards are considered outcasts. Apparently they spoke out against Caparaza and he had to kill them. And they apparently think everyone's dead with the exception of Jean. And Jean has a very steep price on his head. They also killed Abelius's younger brother, which is why he is not ratting them out to the Kappa. They take inventory of what they have and what they have is basically nothing. I mean, I'm just giving you a look because you said the word inventory when you could have said assets. <laughs> it was a missed opportunity. I'm just You're saying. right. I appreciate you pointing that out. We don't get better. We don't have our shortcomings pointed out every once in a while. So, and they have a mask of Azagia. That's what they got. Those are their assets. Those are their assets. They don't have a Holocaust cloak, though. No Holocaust cloak. No what bag of holding. No bag of holding. They are up the creek. What are they going to do? So in part two, we have a flashback. John sneaks his way back into the church of Azagia, walks up, tells him he's an initiate of the fifth order. And then he goes in, finds robes and a mask of the order and gets kind of a safe place to stay if he needs to. I assume that he's not staying there because I I do do not think his story of swimming with the Dark Brothers and escaping a slave ship would hold up for very long. Eh, fair point. But his point was that there aren't many disguises for a man of his size. And when he puts that mask on, you know, even people who haven't been through the first couple of mysteries know those priests are creepy as anything, and they don't want anything to do with them. Yeah, they're not. You don't want people looking at you when you're trying to be disguised. That's one way to really make sure motherfuckers ain't looking at you. Right. Nobody wants to mess with those priests of Azagia. In part three, we're kind of back in the, quote, present time with Locke, Jean, and Abelius, and they talk about their circumstances. I found it interesting that Abelius says that he's familiar with uh, the Crooked Warden, and it made me question, are all the right people familiar with the Benefactor, the 13th God? It seems like it is, though I do not think that Abelius is one of the right people. I don't... Well, he's not a... Mm-hmm. He's not... The right people are people who have taken an oath to serve... The Kappa, Kappa mm-hmm. Barsavi or Kappa Raza, mm-hmm. and they they fit in a structure. Now, Abelius is a dog leech, and he tends to, his customers tend to be the right people. He patches them up, so he would be familiar with, but it seems to me like the right people do believe in and follow the 13th God. The 13th God. It's just interesting to me because I feel like there's some inconsistencies in turn, and I could be wrong. I'd have to go through and read it a little bit more clearly, but I feel like there's might be some inconsistencies in terms of what, uh, in terms of what Locke and his and the gentleman bastards understand 
versus what everybody else seems to understand about the 13th God. And it feels to me like if, if everybody knew about the 13th God, that they would have a better understanding of the gentleman bastards and would be able to see through what they were doing more easily. My understanding is that the talking about the 13th God is considered blasphemy. So among devout people of any of the other gods, it would be a taboo thing to talk about. Anytime it's mentioned, a lot of times it's mentioned and people, people are kind of like, that's blasphemy, Hmm. you know, because they take their gods very seriously. Not because they're devout or like have any kind of emotional connection like we've talked about before, but because they seem to legitimately believe that they are going to be struck dead by these gods. So the idea of the 13th God, you'd think more people would embrace that, I guess, but it seems to be sort of a taboo subject. Mm, Okay. And Locke being a priest of the 13th God, I think probably would understand a little bit more about his workings. Yeah, that's fair. I don't think that everyone who follows him as a priest of him. You know, my understanding is that Chains was a priest and Locke has succeeded him in that office. So he has been through initiations of his own. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So a few other things we find out is that Caparaza did not out Locke as the Thorn of Camor, at least not publicly. Right. Which is important. But it causes me to happen, excuse me, causes me to wonder what will happen if Locke keeps the Salvara game going. So, because if he does, and there are rumors now about the Thorn of Camor, then Caparaz will instantly know that Locke is alive. And we know by the end of this section that he, he is going to continue the Salvara game. So, I'm curious. that It doesn't seem like that's crossed his mind. Or he doesn't care. Or he doesn't care, I, yeah. I don't think he intends to keep the fact that he's alive a secret for forever no no of course um the other part of it is they need they need money like they need money to be able to buy the things they need to operate so right they've got to find a way to get money one way or the other and and that apparently seems the easiest way to do it in their mind right Uh, also caparaza is apparently sending money to a plague ship yeah, so we find out about the plague ship uh, in this in this section, and then the next section, uh, we watch Jean as he is going about and watching the people on the plague ship. I want to come back to that, but first, there's another thing that that Caparaza does that I think is important. So there are about a dozen of the right people that he outs as agents of the spider. Oh, that's right. And we go back, I went back and kind of read through that interaction with uh, Donia Verkenza again, and we know that the spider has agents mixed in with, or had, with Kappa Barsabi's people. So we know that that's a correct thing. Do we assume that the Grey King knows who they were? I mean, so he outed these people. I would assume he outed them not just randomly, that he must have known who they were. And if so, what does that mean? Well, and I think it's interesting, too, that he did not kill them. He certainly had no compunction about killing people who were wavering in their loyalty. Yeah, correct. But he didn't kill these supposed agents of the spider. He exiled them and told them they better get the heck out of Dodge, but didn't kill them. So I thought that was interesting, too. I presume that's because he's afraid of the spider. And he should be. She's a badass bee. There you go. <laughs> She's a spider. She eats bees. 
So, yeah, that's when we find out about the plague ship. And Jean goes out and he's watching a group of toughs as they are getting on a boat trying to go out to the plague ship to apparently provide provisions, water and food and things like that for the people stuck on the plague ship. But what Jean realizes is that instead they're carrying bags of gold or coin. Yeah. Another thing I noticed is that Jean looks at the the Tufts and does not recognize any of them. So they're supposed to be right people, but it's not people that he recognizes. So he believes then that these are people that the great king brought with him. They're not any of Barsavi's old people. And what he notices is that they're dressed and act more like pirates than they do thieves. Hmm. Which I think is going to be relevant. I That's a good catch. Yeah. I catch things. You catch things. Sometimes when they're thrown at me. Sometimes. So in part five and six, kind of we end up here, is just the sections where Locke wants to get moving, but he's too weak to travel. So they attempt to come up with a plan, but find out... They attempt to come up with a plan, but all they find are obstacles of their poor circumstances. My favorite part of this chapter is when Locke stands up and says... I'll start my war from here. And then he promptly falls over. Yeah. <laughs> and Jean says, start it from here? Well, that looks damn uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> and also at the very end, so Locke is, we talked a little bit before about the idea of Locke getting off kind of lightly after being starved, beaten, and drowned in a barrel of horse urine. Yeah. But we see now that he's still paying the price. So he didn't get off scot-free. He did manage to, I guess, through a combination of adrenaline and shock, just kind of force himself through the rest of that evening. But he has now collapsed for what's probably going to end up being a solid week. So we see mm-hmm. that he didn't get off lightly from that physical trial. Yeah, absolutely. But his determination is still there. Yeah. And at the end, we end with him saying, all right, I'm just going to go out on the town with this pocket full of money. And, and John says, do you have a plan? And he says, no. That's how I work best. So I'll, I'll find an opening, and then I suppose I'll do something rash. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, isn't that how all my best plans happen? <laughs> Without a plan and me doing something stupid? <laughs> so one of the things I want to talk about this section is it seems a little strange to me that Eagle Claw slash the Falconer would assume that Locke is dead, but that John's alive. I'm just trying to kind of go back through what happened And I'm trying to think about it from the point of view of the Falconer. He knows that Locke ends up in a barrel. He apparently is able to make connections with his brain. But he goes down into the barrel. He doesn't really see what happens. But then he inhabits the spiders. I'm assuming he can see through the eyes of the animals. So that's how he knows that, you know, Jean and Bug were down there. And then Jean kills him. At which point now the Falconer can't tell what's going on the busted barrel would still be down there as evidence that Locke got out. Also, the fact that it wouldn't be, there's no body. And then they end up in the Church of Paralandro. He knows this because, well, because it's their base, but also because they go in there and the place gets burned down and one of his assassins get gets killed. He lays a trap there for Jean Tannen, but, you know, somehow still believes that Jean Tannen somehow managed to get out. Why would he assume, presume that it was Jean Tannen who managed to survive and not Bug or not Locke? It's just strange. 
And if he could reach out to Locke's mind before, how can he not reach out to Locke's mind now? So those are good questions. A couple of thoughts occur to me. One, we're operating under the assumption that he can see through the eyes of all animals. Mm -hmm, True. The same as he sees through his falcon. True. That might be erroneous. Oh, yeah, very well. And we're a little bit influenced by George R. R. Martin and his whole system of, of people who can warg. Yeah, true. So we haven't really had those powers explained to us in this universe yet. It may not be that he knows John is alive because he can see through the eyes of the spiders. There may be something else. So well, yeah, he yeah. may have still assumed that Locke died because who lives after being punched and stabbed and put into a bottle of horse urine? Yeah, fair question. But he may know Jean is alive simply because the temple burned down and they only found, what, four bodies? Well, at this point, I don't think they found any bodies because they talk about going to the church and it's still burning and nobody being able to get in. So I don't think they found any bodies. Well, that's a good point. The other thing, too, is we don't we don't know, or at least I don't recall, if in the whole mental telepathy thing going back and forth between... Locke and the Falconer, if that was a one-way or a two-way communication. I don't I don't recall. That is not explained to us either. And I don't believe that we ever see the Falconer reading Locke's mind. Yeah. So he it, may just be putting thoughts into Correct. Yeah. He may just minds. be able to project his thoughts. But but interesting that he wouldn't even try. I don't know. Um I just it found, also indeed might be that the falconer is being kept very busy. It could be. You know, he is trying to help orchestrate a coup of the most organized criminal underworld described in many books that I've ever read. So True, true. So okay, yeah, those are just some things I had that I questions I'd like to to see get answered. So, all right, next uh chapter is the interlude called White Iron Conjurers. We learn about the Maraggio. The Maraggio family. I thought it was interesting that the Mar- I mean, that's really what it is. It's just the history of this family. Right. I thought it was interesting that the first one to make the distinction, you know, and really set the family apart was a female captain. So I thought that was one of the, one of the Duke's captains. I thought that was, was interesting and cool. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So we learn that the Maraggio, who is kind of a title, whoever the head of the Maraggio family is at the time. Mm-hmm. They're a family of bankers. And he's the most devious, the most subtle. He's the most rich mofo of all the mofos. Oh, yeah. Out there. And it talks about how important Maraggio's the bank is to all of the Theron city-states. You know, it's yeah, described correct. as the blood and sinews of all the Theron city-states. Not just Camor. Not just Camor. So they call Maraggio the Duke of White Iron. And I just think it's interesting to see you kind of get a like a cross section of the history and where this civilization is in its development. Mm-hmm. So banking is an industry and the whole idea of keeping people's money and loaning it out and having interest and all that, that's all kind of new. For, yeah. the, for this civilization. Yeah, relatively, yeah. So it's just interesting to look at that. You know, we've talked about how in this culture and the civilization, the idea of a confidence game is is unheard of. These yeah. are the first people to have done it. So I feel like that kind of goes hand in hand with this idea of banking as an industry being new as well. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing I, I thought about this interlude is what's the deal 
what's the fascination with everybody throwing valuables into the sea? Right. What, what the <laughs> fuck, man? Like one of the Miragios just takes a bag with 50 marks in it out into the middle of the, the bay every day and dumps it into the bay. Well, we've already learned that all Komori are all fucking crazy, so. Who's got that kind of time? You're trying to, like, start a bank and you got time to row out to the middle of the bay every day and drop coins over the side? Apparently it worked. I mean, correlation does not equal causation. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) They could have been more valuable if they had not thrown 50 gold marks every single day into the ocean. I don't understand it. It keeps popping up over and over again. Anyway, chapter 13. So chapter 13 is called Orchids and Assassins. And the one-sentence description of this is that Locke walks in in rags and walks out wearing the Miragio's own clothes. (laughs) It's pretty awesome, right? It's pretty cool. This is a nice little mini heist that's kind of thrown in there right as we've seen our heroes just get run through the mill absolutely and they're yeah. at their lowest and we get to see what Locke can do yep. when he's desperate when he's desperate and clever and he is he is both of those things so the long and the short of it is that Locke is desperate he needs money so he wants to continue the Salvara game but he can't go as Lucas Fairright because he doesn't have any of his kit so he's going to go into the bank with the intention of trying to find somebody who's approximately his size, well-dressed, he knows of somebody already, and try to talk them out of their clothes. Talk him out of his britches. Right? So. <laughs> and the answer's a hard no. Yeah, sorry, bro. <laughs> uh, sorry, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. Never before has a straight man tried so hard to talk another man out of his pants. <laughs> Twice, three times. <laughs> three times, right? <laughs> so he goes to two different bankers, and neither of them have anything to do with them. And it's just painful. It's pay- like, you could see that Locke is scrambling. Yeah. He doesn't really even think what he's doing is going to work. It's just painful to listen to him he's, come up with these reasons why he's basically this guy begging. needs to lend him his clothes. Yeah. It's like, you know, my clothes got ran over, and then and then my mother died. I've got I got seven kids, and little Susie needs an operation. Please, man, <laughs> just give me your pants. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> so, These so guys are like hell no. What? No, no, thank you. So he comes up with a different plan after learning that the second clerk is afraid to give him his clothes because apparently the Miragio pulls a little loyalty tests all the time. So he files that piece of information away, and then he goes and bribes a waiter, Ben Javier, and he wants to borrow his outfit and then give him some money in return. Once the waiter agrees to this, he then turns the waiter in for doing it, and this allows him to approach Miragio. He pretends that Caparaza has sent him there to protect him from an assassination attempt that he's learned about, and then leverages that opportunity to get him into his private quarters and to convince him that he needs to give him his clothes so that Locke can pretend to be him so the assassin will go off of his trail. Once he gets out of there, he goes back, finds this Ben Javier character, and they walk out. That's the ruse. So what did you think of this? So there were two things I thought. I I liked it better on the reread. Because my first time through, I'm like, 
Like, man, we are just doing a lot of back and forth and forth and back and all this just to get some damn clothes. Like, I get that the clothes are important. Don't get me wrong. Like, I understand that he can't move forward with the Don Salvara game unless he gets the clothes. It just seemed like this late in the book, that's an awful lot of time to devote to trying to get some damn clothes. It leads me to believe that there's going to be more to the whole Miragio thing that's going to come up at a later time that he's laying groundwork for. I hope that's it. At the same point in time, it's also really good from a character standpoint to show you how quick Locke is in picking things up and how clever he can be and how ballsy he can be just to get a set of damn clothes. So it was interesting. I enjoyed it better on the second read. I, I still think it was a lot of time to devote to something that just didn't seem to be all that important in my mind. But I guess it's not unimportant. He's got to have those closed to move forward with his plan. There were a couple of thematic things that I picked up on in this chapter. One is, and we've talked a lot about the spirituality of the different characters and of mm-hmm. this world. And I thought it was interesting that in the very beginning section, Locke is standing there. He's getting ready to walk into the counting house and enact his his first not very good plan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is basically just give me your pants. Give man. me your pants, man. <laughs> but he's praying to the benefactor. And he's like, "This, you know what I need? And he says, I'd like your aid. And if I don't get it, well, to hell with you. I'll come out with what I need anyway. But at the end... Joe Boo doesn't help him hit curveballs. <laughs> That's right. Somebody will get that. I, I got it. You got that? I got it. <laughs> so that kind of set the tone for Locke's spirituality. And then it was striking to me when his plan falls into motion the way they describe it. So Locke has, you know, he's asked a law clerk for his pants. Got a hard no. Mm-hmm. He asked another guy for his pants. He got a hell no. He got laughed at him. And then he looks up. And he's being like ready to get escorted out of the building again. And he looks up and he sees the Miragio. And it says, the plans seem to come up out of nowhere. It's swept into his thoughts like a boarding party rushing onto a ship. In the blink of an eye, he was in its power. And I just wondered if this could be seen as divine intervention. Mm. And is Lynch writing as though, are we going to find out that the gods really are real? Is this some kind of, is the, is the benefactor actually answering his prayer? Maybe. Because having it, seeing it described as Locke being caught up in the plan, almost like it's coming from outside of him. I just wondered if that was, that was true. Could be at this stage in a new fantasy world, we have no idea. Like there's, you know, it, it the gods could quite literally be literal. And I think it's interesting to explore in this chapter the importance of clothes and Lynch talks a lot about authority. Yeah. He touches on some the, the Machiavellian ideas of power and the importance of your ability to seem powerful over whether or not you actually deserve to rule. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So and in here we actually see Locke walking in, broke as all get out and walking out with the clothes of one of the richest and most powerful men in the world. Mm -hmm. And the quote that I wrote down is, it was strange how readily authority could be conjured with nothing but a bit of strutting jackassery. (laughs) And I just think that's an important theme of this book and the idea of the appearance of power and how quickly we will allow someone to have authority over us without really thinking about it. Yeah, absolutely. 
All right. And at least he let Ben Javier go. He did, yeah. He was like, sorry, dude. Yeah, because that was he put him totally, in a bat. He really did. When he turned around and was like, Ben Javier, he's trying to kill you. I was like, oh, man. Dude. Threw him under the bus. Hardcore. It's cold. I just hope Ben Javier isn't leaving behind some amazing love interest that we don't know anything about. She has red hair. She might. <laughs> if she does, then she will be sassy and spunky. That's right. And come from the wrong side of town. She will. She might be a prostitute. All redheads come from the wrong side of town. Only half of them are hookers, though, okay? Well, the only hookers in fantasy novels that actually matter are all redheads. (laughs) Right. The only ones with speaking lines are redheads. (laughs) So do you have anything else on Chapter 13? No, that's it. Are you ready for predictions? Yes. All right, I got a couple of predictions. These are some loose-ass predictions, because I have not fully fleshed them out, but I'll do my best. So, prediction number one, Sabatha doesn't show up in this goddamn book at all. (laughs) I thought she would show up in this section. (laughs) Now I'm predicting she doesn't show up till the next book. He he stares at me after he makes the predictions, just waiting for my (laughs) face to twitch. All right, my next prediction. Caparaza has his sights set on something higher than just being a Kappa, though I don't know what it is yet. I, it just seems strange to me that he would essentially have more power and money than Kappa Barsavi just to take out Kappa Barsavi. He's got a plague ship that he's filling with money. Again, that sets to me that sets him up as he's trying something else. He's trying to take out Duke Nicovante. He's funneling money to an army. He's funneling money to something in a different country to start a war. I I don't know what it is yet, but this is not the end of it for him. Also, I think Locke is going to end up stealing the money on the plague ship or from the boat on the plague ship. Somehow he's going to end up stealing from that plague ship. My suspicion is that he's going to realize that the Don Salvara game is going to get him caught or he's, or something's going to happen to make that not feasible. And then he's going to realize that the plague ship's full of money and find a way to steal from that. I also think that the Grey King's connection to the boat, like I do think he comes from, he's either a sailor, a pirate, something along those lines. And I think that that is going to be a factor in Locke leaving Kamor. It's going to be somehow tied to the Grey King. So those are my predictions. Good predictions all. We shall see. Time will tell. If we go on to the next book, we may learn more. Okay. Are you ready for fan interactions? Yes. All right. Fantastic. Okay. So we have Ashley Marie, who says... I blame my pronunciation of Komori names in this series on the half semester of Italian I took in college, but my brain automatically reads Vorcenza with a hard C, Vorkenza, rather than the ch sound. You know, that is very likely correct. What do we know? What do I know? I don't know. Jack all about Italian. Half semester of Italian is a half semester more than I took. (laughs) For damn sure. For damn sure. 
Uh, she also says, uh, catching up a few days late. Huzzah for the parasol protectorate mention. Woohoo. That's right. Uh, Daryl Mansell on Facebook linked us to an article announcing that Sam Raimi would be the director for the upcoming Name of the Wind movie. The movie or the show? Movie. The movie. So apparently they are back to this idea of doing the Name of the Wind novel as a movie. Just the novel. From what I read, yes. From what I read. And I mean, I think that would be cool. Yeah, I think yeah, I think that would be cool. It's gonna be tough to do that in one novel, but I don't know. It's I mean, The Name of the Wind is a long book, but it's a lot it's not a long plot. No, and, and you, you know? Yeah, I think a lot of the story could be told in visual elements that would dramatically cut down on the need for a heavy page count. Yeah, you could montage a lot of it. Not only montage, but just so many of the little things about like Tarbian, you could cut out three chapters of that in one like staging shot. Right. You know what I mean? Could demonstrate. Montage. Yeah, you could demonstrate what that's like, you know. Studying montage. So Staring at chicks montage. There <laughs> should be a You're lot done. of those. That's it. Pat Sponagle also linked to a different article with the same basic content on Twitter. Uh, and then Theo Adam, uh, Pat, and Colin Sandberg and I all kind of got in this back and forth discussion about it. So some conversation there. Theo at the OGB says, I only have one prediction to make after uh, for this episode. And he says that he thinks the spider will capture Fairright, but that it'll actually be the Grey King that the Great King will try to continue the scam in Locke's stead. Ooh, that's a good prediction. That is a good prediction. Mm-hmm. I like that one. I don't like to read them until after I've made my predictions. Right. This one I read before I made my predictions. It was tempting to steal it, but I did not. Hoffman Art Gallery said, Did anybody raise an eyebrow to the fact that shortly after we know we learn of the spider and the spider learns about the scheme the giant spiders show up to kill a couple of the major players. Just saying. That is a crazy observation. I never noticed that before. I did not either. I did not either. So we also got another interaction on Facebook from Ashley Collins. So Ashley says, I was cruising around Amazon the other day, and for a lark, I decided to go read all the negative or low-star reviews of Eliza Lacklamora. To be honest, I found it quite entertaining. I never knew so many people were so offended by profanity in fantasy. That is interesting. I did not realize that either. I can see why people wouldn't like profanity in their fantasy. I think it could either take you out of the world, or it could draw you in. It doesn't bother me, obviously. I think you, if you're not careful with the way you do it as a writer, you could. it could definitely be... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Jarring. Yeah, it could, it, yeah, and anachronistic. That's a better word. There you go. So I can I can see that, but it, it definitely doesn't bother me either, as long as it isn't doesn't come across as anachronistic. But it also gave me a good idea. I thought that's a good idea. We should go find some bad reviews and read them. That's a great idea. So now I'm going to read some bad reviews. <laughs> Scott Lynch, if you're listening, you can just fast forward this part. And just skip Nobody ahead two or three minutes. To listen to this. Yeah. These people are all wrong. We love your book. I did not include any of these people's names okay. because I don't want people to hunt them down and harass them. They're allowed to have their opinion. So I wanted to read a couple of uh, of 
quote-unquote bad reviews. So the first one says, incredibly violent. Also, it wastes the potential of all the female characters, the very few it has, by making them accessories of the plot and taking away most or all of their agency. Well, I disagree with that. I don't know about you. I mean, I get that none of the the main gang, I guess, of gentlemen bastards that we see are women. But I would we've talked about this throughout the podcast. I see very strong female characters throughout and many of them are secondary. But, you know, I, I am annoyed by a lot of female characters in fantasy books and none of them in this book rub me the wrong way. Yeah, there is a little bit of putting women in refrigerators with the Nazca stuff. I get that. I also think that that happens in the real world and that women do get hurt in the real world and that men, as a result, do get angry about it in the real world. So I think if I continue to see that, then I would say, okay, that's a that's a valid thing. Now we're tying the princess to the railroad track. Right. But I can kind of... I can kind of give you the, you know, you get one freebie from me because that happens in the real world. Right. You know. So next one says, I gave up in the scene where he's on the boat with the people where he's doing the long con, the floating orchard. Oh, that's it? They gave up there? Yeah, I know. (laughs) I mean, it's like 30 pages in. I'll I'll give it to you. This book takes a little while to get into. I think it took me a little while to get into. Mm. There are a lot of wordy descriptions of architecture and stuff and long stretches where there isn't any dialogue. So mm. I, I kind of get that. It took me a little while to get to get really hooked. But I usually try to give a book more than 30 pages. Yeah, that's like 30 pages in. Unless something really atrocious or absolutely appallingly annoying happens in the first 30 pages. I usually give a book at least 100 pages. Hmm. Yeah, the, it goes on, it says, then he adds the insanely complicated society with made-up words requiring parenthetical definitions of overly complicated rituals just for the sake of, ooh, is this a different world? And I couldn't take another minute. George R. R. Martin praised it as richly detailed, which makes sense since he's another one who never uses three words when seven pages will do. Okay, well, that person just doesn't like books, I guess. <laughs> Enjoy your stick figure. I don't know. Watch movies, man. Watch movies. (laughs) Watch movies, bro. It's all good. So next one says, this was maybe one of the worst books I've ever read. Wow. (laughs) Granted, I just finished reading Rothfuss Martin and some Sanderson novels, but dear Lord, this book was awful. No direction, a million proper nouns that have absolutely no relevance to the story, and an Ocean's Eleven style plot Just kidding. Nothing clever. Nothing smart whatsoever happens. Just luck and poor writing. Sorry, I couldn't stand this book. I was going to donate my copy to our local library, but I realized I didn't want anyone else to read it either. Wow. That is a scathing review. (laughs) They really didn't like this book. I mean, obviously, I disagree with it, but... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's not my favorite book. But for for goodness sake, that's terrible. All right, I got a couple others real quick. So this one says, I just couldn't continue with Lynch describing everything in freaking detail. The roads, the buildings, etc. Just no. So you did think there was an awful lot of description. I didn't feel like there was. 
It's interesting because we've talked about me being a skim reader before. Yeah. And while I don't usually when I'm reading a book skim all the descriptions, but I I did find myself skimming in the beginning of this book quite a bit. Uh, On the reread, I did not. And obviously when I'm sitting here now for the third time reading it and trying to take notes for the podcast, I'm reading every single word. And there have been times where I felt like, a lot of describing mm. stuff. But then when I get a little more into it and put more thought, I'm realizing that I think there's some significance to, especially descriptions of the elder glass and the various various structures and stuff. And yeah. I start wondering, is there a greater purpose to all of that? Yeah. Is that going to be significant in some way? Yep. That's kind of the way I felt about the Miragio, this section. Mm-hmm. Those, I mean, half of what we read was related to the Miragio. It right. was the family history of the Miragio, then the inner workings of the Miragio. And I just kept thinking, okay, I'm hoping this comes back around in some way, because it does otherwise seem like an awful lot of detail at a point in the book where we don't really need to be setting more stuff up. Right. But it wasn't, like, unenjoyable <laughs> like these people are. Well, and I have to wonder, though, if if Jean and Locke had gone from barrel of horse piss, poor, beat that beat up, and been able to somehow very easily jump back into the Don Salvara game, which took, previously had taken all of their resources and wiles. Yeah. Would we have seen that as realistic? It's a good point. Would we have criticized it for being like too easy for them to do that? Or if all of a sudden they just show up, you know, dressed to the hilt with some amazing plan that required months of laying framework and they've got all kinds of money to pull it off, but there's no explanation of how they got there. Right. Could be the same way. Or if they miraculously had saved one set of Lucas Fairwright's clothes. Like, they would have said, we would have said that was too easy. That's a good point. Uh, For me, that's why the whole Miragio section works. Because we had to actually see them. You know, when we see them at the height of their conning power, they've already built up all of this. You know, the wardrobe, the, the teamwork, the money, they've already got all of this. So now we get a chance to see them from the ground up. Yeah. What can Locke and Jean do with Nothing. 10 crowns in their pocket? Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Good point. All right, this is the last one, and it's my favorite. Oh, boy. It says, oh, it's short. Don't worry. Couldn't finish. Barely even got started. Dullsville. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's my new burn for everything. <laughs> Couldn't finish. Barely, barely got even got started. Dullsville. Dullsville. <laughs> Population U. Wow. So, yeah. So that's been bad reviews. <laughs> bad reviews. And thank you, Ashley Collins, for giving us that idea. That's a good one. I enjoyed that. We got to find some more good bad reviews. All right, so let's let's recap what we're doing next time. Okay. So episode 40, we are going to cover Paper Girls. All right. And episode 41, we're going to return back to the Liza Locke Lamora episode. Correct. Okay. Episode 40, I'm sorry, in episode 41, we're going to read chapter 14, chapter 15, and the interludes, the two interludes, Ending at the one titled... The Throne in Ashes. The Throne in Ashes. There you go. So, end there. 
And then chapter, excuse me, episode 42 will be the end of Lies of Locke Lamora. Correct. So if you have opinions on what we should do next, now is a good time to voice those opinions. Yes, we really would love people's feedback. Would you like to hear us do Red Seas under over Red Skies? Red Seas under Red Skies. There you That's go. That's right. The seas go on the bottom. Sky <laughs> goes on the top. Um, would you like to see us get into another series? Um, or, you know, we've even talked about covering Red Seas, but short in a shorter format, maybe not going through it quite so slowly, doing one or two podcasts on it, and then doing another series as well. What are your thoughts? All right. So we have another five-star review on iTunes. Awesome. This is an anonymous one. So we don't know who you are, but you know who you are, and we thank you for your review. We love getting the reviews on iTunes, but what we love more than anything is word of mouth. We love it when you tell friends, when you tell family, when you tell your coworkers, when you tell the cop who pulled you over, when you tell the waitress at the Waffle House, <laughs> you know, tell your doctor when he's got his finger up your butt. We love it. Tell your chiropractor. <laughs> That's called a callback, <laughs> folks. It's called a callback. Good job. If you have any questions for the Duchess, you can send them to advice at the Duke and Duchess podcast.com. That's the email address. You can find us on the Duke and Duchess podcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at the DND podcast. That's D as in David, N as in Nancy, D as in David podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Duke and Duchess. And if you'd like to be a part of the conversations we have there on Facebook, search for the Duke and Duchess podcast group where you can contribute to the conversation. So that's all we have for tonight. We look forward to seeing you next week. Pick up Paper Girls, everyone. Go get it. Go get it. Can you get it on Amazon? I'm sure you can. You can. But if you can, go to your local comic book store first. Yes, much better. Much better. Absolutely. Good night, everyone. Good night. Hello, Questers. This is Mandy, the host of Caster Quest, inviting you to enjoy our podcast where we explore the rich and vibrant world of Patrick Rothfuss's best-selling fantasy series, The Kingkiller Chronicle. Soon to be adapted as a major motion picture and television show produced by the award-winning creator of Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Hungry for more content? Perhaps you will enjoy our recaps of HBO's Game of Thrones, Over the Garden Wall, animated Batman films, or our world-famous erotic fanfiction reads. Whatever you're in the mood for, if you love a good story, humor, impromptu parody songs, and thousands of pop culture references, you'll enjoy our show. You can find Cast Request on SoundCloud, iTunes, and of course, our amazing network, the Earth Station One Network at esopodcast.com.